0: first of tonight's readings comes from Genesis chapter 15. After this, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Do not be afraid, Abram. I'm your shield, your very great reward. But Abram said, O sovereign Lord, what can you give me since I remain childless, and the one who will inherit my estate is Eliza of Damascus? And Abram said, You have given me no children, so a servant in my household will be my heir. Then the word of the Lord came to him, This man will not be your heir, but a son coming from your own body will be your heir. He took him outside and said, Look up to the heavens and count the stars, If indeed you can count them, then he said to him, So shall your offspring be. Abram believed the Lord, and he credited it to him as righteousness. He also said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out of Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to take possession of it. But Abram said, O sovereign Lord, how can I know that I will gain possession of it? So the Lord said to him, Bring me a heifer, a goat, and a ram, each three years old, ...along with a dove and a young pigeon. Abram brought all these to him, cut them in two and arranged the halves opposite each other. The birds, however, he did not cut in half. Then birds of prey came down on the carcasses, but Abram drove them away. As the sun was setting, Abram fell into a deep sleep and a thick and dreadful darkness came over him. Then the Lord said to him, Know for certain that your descendants will be strangers in a country... Not their own, and they will be enslaved and mistreated four hundred years. But I will punish the nation they serve as slaves, and afterward they, cu- they will come out with great possessions. You, however, will go to your fathers in peace and be buried at a good old age. In the fourth generation, your descendants will come back here, for the sin of the Amorites has not yet reached its full measure. When the sun had set and darkness had fallen, A smoking firepot with a blazing torch appeared and passed between the pieces. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram and said, To your descendants, I give this land from the river of Egypt to the great river, the Euphrates, the land of the Kenites, Kenazites, Kadmonites, Hittites, Perizzites, Rephaites, Amorites, Canaanites, Gergeshites, and Berbisites. The second of tonight's readings is from uh, Romans chapter 4, verse 18. Against all hope, Abram in hope believed, and so became the father of many nations, just as it had been said to him. So shall your offspring be. Without weakening in his faith, he faced the fact that his body was as good as dead since he was about 100 years old and that Sarah's womb was also dead. Yet he did not waver through unbelief regarding the promise of God, but was strengthened in his faith and gave glory to God, being, fu- being fully persuaded that God had power to do what he had promised. This is why it was credited to him as righteousness. The words it was credited to him were written not for him alone, but also for us, to whom God will credit righteousness, for us who believe in him who raised Jesus our Lord from the dead. He was delivered over to death for our sins and was raised to life for our justification.
1: Thanks very much, Carolyn. Um, if you could put your Bibles back open to Genesis 15, that would be good, thank you. Uh My name's Des, I'm one of the student ministers here, I confess I'm always tempted at the end of that part of chapter 15 to add the word after Ammonites, Canaanites, Girgashites, Jebusites, Vegemites, but um, unfortunately, no such tribe actually ever existed. Um, You know, that's how that goes. Um, I want to tell you an old saying, there are three kinds of people in the world, those who can count and those who can't. Ooh, tough crowd. It is, it is definitely a lame joke, and you could be forgiven for wondering what it has to do with tonight's passage. Well, I will tell you, but only in about 15 minutes. In the meantime, I want to tell you that we are starting tonight a new series on Genesis 12 to 50. Now, if you've been coming here for a little while, you'll understand that this actually comes on the back of another series that we finished just a couple of weeks ago on the first 11, well, actually the first 12 chapters of Genesis. Genesis. Now, Genesis is a great place to start in the Bible, it's a great beginning. The word itself actually means beginning and that is, of course, over the weeks that we looked at these first 11 chapters, what we looked at. We saw, really, the story in two halves, chapters 1 to 2 of God's creation of a good world in which He promised great things to the people He made and then chapters 3 to 11, in which it all began to go down the drain when Adam and Eve stuffed it up, rejected God, and went their own way. It ends with the absolute pinnacle of sinfulness, the pinnacle of rejection, in chapter 11, with the Tower of Babel, when human beings decide that they will not just be content to assert their authority over earth, want to, in fact, storm heaven by building a tower to overtake it. But with Genesis chapter 12, as we saw a couple of weeks ago, We saw a glimmer of hope in a man named Abraham. And it's that glimmer of hope that we really see extended in the rest of Genesis, from chapter 12 to chapter 50. If the first part, chapter 1 to 11, is mankind's full-on assault on God, 12 to 50 is the beginning of God's rebellion. It is the beginning of God's fight back to save for Himself a people. Now, you'll be thankful that you'll be grateful to know that we're not going to go through 12 to 50 quite as slowly as we went through uh, 1 to 11. We will actually be finished it by the end of next year. We're actually only going to cover four talks. And those four talks correspond to the four main characters in this section. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob and Joseph. Now, I should warn you that by the end of chapter 50, by the end of these four characters in these four weeks, We'll see that we've still got a long way to go in God's fight back, His mission to save a people for Himself, out of their rebellion. But we will see that there's hope. I think it's best summed up by an expression that Winston Churchill used about quite another event. The war had turned slightly in the Allies' favour at the Battle of Egypt. He said at a speech at Mansion House in London, on the 10th of June, 1942, now is not the end, it's not even the beginning of the end, but it is perhaps the end of the beginning. And that is what Genesis 12 to 50 is. It's not the end, it's not even the beginning of the end, but it is the end of the beginning. And that's what our series is called, and our sermon tonight will be on that fir- that first character in there, Abraham. So if you're a note taker, there'll just be three points, not of equal length, so don't kind of, you know, kind of get disastrous if, you know, it's tomorrow and I've only finished my first, well it won't be that long. Uh, Three points, Abraham, Jesus and us. So, first of all, Abraham. We come to Abraham in the passage that has just been read to us in chapter 15, really in the middle of a crisis. It's a key passage Because in Genesis chapter 12, as we saw a couple of weeks ago, God singled out Abraham as the first person to lead this rebellion back to God. The curse that had spread in chapter 3 was to be stemmed with this one thoroughly unlikely man. God promised Abraham a huge family and a massive piece of real estate to put them in, and all the blessings that would go with that, and Abraham trusted him, if you remember that passage. And he went off into that country, Canaan. But it seems, when we get to chapter 15, like God's promises kind of got off to a fairly shaky start. Abraham turns up to the new country, Canaan, only to find it kind of well and truly occupied by quite a number of other nations. It's not just all paddocks and gleaming mountains and sparkling brooks, it seems to be full of people. It would be a little bit like the real estate agent who sells you a house only for you to arrive and find that there are any number of tenants still in occupation with no chance of moving any time soon. You knock on the door, walk through with your open boxes, only to have someone walk past you from the bathroom with a towel around their waist saying good morning with a piece of toast in their mouth. It's not exactly what Abraham really had in his mind. But we then see that in chapter 14, not only are these people, these nations who are occupying the land that God's promised to Abraham, not only are they there, they're also hostile. Abraham gets caught up in a war between them, when his nephew Lot, who's been separated from him, gets captured and Abraham has to go off and grab him back. So, the tenants are not just there, they're also hostile. They're not just tenants, they're uni students and the fight here is about far more than who hasn't cleaned the bathroom or whether or not the toilet lid was left down or up. So, Abraham finds himself in a nation not exactly wondering what has happened to the promises of God, so, God comforts him. Read with me verse 1 of chapter 15. After this, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Do not be afraid, Abram. I'm your shield, your very great reward. God will protect him. Things seem like they've gone off badly, but God and His promises are still very much in charge. Abram responds, Verse 2, but Abram said, O sovereign Lord, what can you give me since I remain childless? And the one who will inherit my estate is Eliezer of Damascus. And Abram said, you've given me no children, so a servant in my household will be my heir. He complains that because he has no kids, he won't have any lineage and a servant will inherit the things that he leaves behind. Now, in some ways, it seems kind of odd, doesn't it? God says He'll protect Abraham personally from suffering, and Abraham complains that he doesn't have any kids. They seem to be talking at kind of cross-purposes. Like, why is He mentioning kids when God's just promised to protect him? God's promised to give him life. But to understand it, you need to enter into the thought world of a person like Abraham, living at the time he does, knowing only the little bit about the universe that God has revealed to him. You see, for Abraham to truly live, to truly have blessing, is to have children, to establish a line, to have a legacy, to have the nation not just for himself, but for a generation that spring from him. For him to just have safety is nothing. For him to have life is for his family and their families and their families to take hold of the land that God has promised him. And that's the point. God has promised him with kids. And so, Abram calls God out on that promise. And so, God answers. He reassures him there in verses 4 to 5. Then the word of the Lord came to him. This man, Eliezer, will not be your heir, but a son coming from your own body will be your heir. He took him outside and said, Look up at the heavens and count the stars, if indeed you can count them. Then he said to him, so shall your offspring be." It's a big call. Far from being childless and having to, you know, give his inheritance to the hired help, Abraham is going to have a family so great that the stars in the night sky don't outnumber it. Bear in mind what a night sky looks like in a world with no streetlights. I don't know if you've ever actually been out into a farm or something like that, And looked up at the sky on a clear, crisp night and been astonished at how many and varied the galaxies are, seeming so close you can almost reach up a hand and pluck one down. It's so different to us who live here in Sydney. If Abraham had lived here in Sydney and God had promised him all descendants like all the stars in the night sky, you can imagine Abraham going, what, four in a helicopter? No, this is a vast array, and it's a vast promise given who Abraham is. He's not exactly a spring chicken anymore. He's about 75 at this stage, and by the time he actually finally has his son, Isaac, in chapter 22, he's pushing 100, as is Sarah. When they have a combined birthday party, it's not a birthday party, it's a bicentenary. They are hardly the greatest, they're hardly the greatest people who you would expect to have a nation like this, and yet that is what God promises him. Now, you'd have every right to think at this point because of that, but Abram would just go, you must be out of your mind. And yet, look at verse 6, and it really is the crux of this passage. Verse 6, Abram believed the Lord, and he credited it to him as righteousness. Let me read that verse to you again, because I honestly think it is one of the most important in the Old Testament. Abram believed the Lord, and he credited it to him as righteousness. Abram believed God. He trusted him when he gave him that promise. And God, in turn, credited that to him as righteousness. Now, what does that mean? It's vital that we understand what it means, because it's crucial to understanding Abraham's relationship with God and humanity's relationship with God. You see, it's funny, isn't it? Abram's trust of God is the exact opposite of Adam and Eve's relationship with Him. You see, God had promised huge blessings to Adam and Eve. They had it right there in front of their eyeballs. The Garden of Eden, everything they could possibly have. The only thing they couldn't do was eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Everything else was theirs. If God's Word was seen to be trustworthy, they only had to look around. And yet we see that at the very root of their sin is distrust. Let me read to you again, chapter 3, verses 4 to 6. The snake says to the woman, perched as she is by the tree, "'You'll not surely die,' the serpent said to the woman, "'for God knows when you eat of it,' that is, the tree, "'your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. "'When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye,' And also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate it. They distrust God. He says, you can have this garden, it's fabulous. They say, God, you're a killjoy, I want that one. I don't believe you. And as a result of their unbelief and as as a result of their distrust, they're cursed. They're no longer righteous in God's eyes because they failed and continue to fail to trust Him, and they sin as a result. And so, the way to become righteous again is naturally then to start trusting God, to treat God the way He should be treated, with trust. And so, Abraham's faith is credited to him as righteousness. Now, note two really important things here, when it comes to how Abraham is made right with God first of all, when God starts this rescue mission for the world, He doesn't start with a guy who's already righteous, a guy who already loves Him, a guy who seems to be particularly nice, or particularly good, or particularly upright. It seems, from the, if we look over the first 11 chapters of Genesis, He would have a really hard time finding a guy like that, there just aren't any. And we're given almost no bi- biographical information about Abram, He just turns up, it would seem that he really is just a guy. And he certainly doesn't tell Abram that him getting this blessing is dependent upon him pulling up his socks, pulling himself up by his bootstraps, and then he'll have the land. No, he just tells him, I'm going to give this to you. And Abram trusts him. But secondly, And this is something that I think is just really important for us to understand. Whether you're a a Christian here or not a Christian, you're checking it out or whatever. The faith that Abraham shows is not a good work that he gets the land and the blessing in exchange for. I'll repeat that again. The faith, the trust that Abraham shows in God's promise isn't a sign that he's kind of worthy of it. It's not something he gives to God. Faith is a word that's so misunderstood these days, but all it just means is trust. And when you think about it, trust is really just an admission of helplessness. Abram basically just gives in to God. God says, I'll give you this land and Abram says, well, I'm never going to get it any other way, that's just what I'll have to do. To pretend otherwise that it's awfully big of you to put your faith in God is like the person who gets given the Christmas present, and then says that they really deserve it because the person couldn't have given it to you unless you'd accepted it. You might have seen in the news recently that the Lockerbie bomber, uh, who, you know, the, the bombing that was in the 19, I think it was 1987, uh, a Libyan man bombed it, killing 250 or so people on board. Uh, an atrocity of almost unimaginable scale. If there's a guy who deserves to stay in prison for the rest of his life, you'd think that would be him. And yet, as if you've seen the news, you might understand that he's recently been allowed on compassionate grounds because he's sick and dying to return to Libya. He's been given grace. Would he be able to say to the Scottish government, well, you really had to give it to me, didn't you? I deserved it because I accepted it. I earned it by accepting it. It's just terrible logic. No, faith isn't something we do. Faith's just giving in faith's just acceptance and that's what Abram does he just trusts and that puts him back in a right relationship with God and we see that confirmed in the rest of this chapter he asks a question in verse 7 read it with me he also said to him so Abram said this to God I'm the Lord who brought you out oh no sorry God says this He also said to him, I'm the Lord who brought you out of Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to take possession of it. But Abram said, O sovereign Lord, how can I know that I will gain possession of it? And then as we read, we see this really strange kind of ritual where Abram's put to sleep and there's, uh, you know, animals are dismembered and a a cooking fire pot kind of floats between them. And all of that seems to signify something about God's commitment to His promise, because He says there in uh, verse 18, On that day the Lord made a covenant, or a promise with Abram, and said, To your descendants I give this land from the river of Egypt to the uh, the great river, the Euphrates. The details, for our purposes, we just don't have the time to go into them. It's basically a ceremony to show that God... Will in fact do what he said he's going to do. God has made a covenant and he has a ceremony to show that. You'll notice that Abraham is actually totally passive in the whole thing. In fact, he couldn't be any more passive, he's unconscious. God promises through this elaborate ceremony to give to Abram the land that he's promised him. God promises to Abram a land, Abram trusts in that. And that's credited to him as righteousness. Abram trusts God and so when he asks God for a sign, God says, well, I'll give you another promise. I know that you take assurance from my promises, so I'll give you another. Abram trusts God. And that's how he's made right with him. Well, I told you at the beginning of this sermon that uh, the joke would be explained in about 15 minutes. Well, it's been about 13 minutes, so you've still got two minutes to go. But you might wonder what this whole faith business has to do with being right with God in the here and now. It's all very well to say that a, a man living thousands of miles away, thousands of years ago, one day put his trust in God and that made him right before Him. But what on earth does that have to do with us? Particularly given the fact that, if you know your Old Testament, For the rest of it, God seems to say that the way you're right with me is by obeying my commands, my law, doing the right thing, being righteous yourself. Faith doesn't seem to have much to do with it. Well, that's certainly the reading, and I think the New Testament makes it clear that it was, in fact, a misreading, that many Jews, even up to Jesus' time, thought That faith was not how you made yourself right with God. That actually we need to please God ourselves. And yet listen again, listen afresh with fresh ears to these words that the Apostle Paul says to the church in Rome. Because Abraham's model of how to be right with God is just as relevant today as it always was. Against all hope, verse 18 in chapter 4. Abraham Abraham in hope believed, and so became the father of many nations. Just as it had been said to him, so shall your offspring be. Without weakening in his faith, he faced the fact that his body was as good as dead since he was about a hundred years old, and that Sarah's womb was also dead. Yet he did not waver through unbelief regarding the promise of God, but was strengthened in his faith and gave glory to God, being fully persuaded that God had power to do what He had promised. This is why it was credited to him as righteousness. But those words are not just for Abraham. Look at verse 23, the words, it was credited to Him, were written not for Him alone, but also for us, to whom God will credit righteousness. For us who believe in Him, who raised Jesus our Lord from the dead. He was delivered over to death for our sins and was raised to life for our justification. You see, the promise of God is exactly the same today as it was to Abraham, and yet so much fuller. Salvation and righteousness in God's eyes for Abraham was being given the land and many children. But we see, looking back, that that promise was all along pointing to a time when God would ultimately deal with sin, not overlooking it, but dealing with it decisively by sending His Son Jesus, delivering Him over to death for our sins, raising Him for our justification, so we can be right with Him. God knows full well there is nothing we can do to make ourselves right with Him. All we can do is fall at our feet, His feet, beg Him for mercy, trust in Him. They're the same thing, on the basis of what Jesus His Son has done for them. Jesus took the blame for us so we could be right with Him, We could have Jesus' righteousness credited to us. There's nothing we can do to earn it. Scripture couldn't be more clear. We can only put our trust in the fact that God has promised, that He has done that. And those people who do it are right with God. So, as we close, how does that affect us? What difference does that make to us? Let me read to you a quote, read you a quote from an author, he's probably one of my favourites really, maybe one of your favourites as well, a guy called C.S. Lewis. It's from an essay that he wrote in 1943 called Three Kinds of Men. It's a little bit of a long quote but I assure you he can say in two minutes what I could say in an hour and he says this and this first line might be familiar to you, there are three kinds of people in the world The first class is of those who live simply for their own sake and pleasure, regarding man and nature as so much raw material to be cut up into whatever shape may serve them. In the second class are those who acknowledge some other claim upon them, the will of God, the categorical imperative or the good of society, and honestly try to pursue their own interests no further than this claim will allow. They try to surrender to the higher claim as much as it demands, like men paying a tax, but hope, like other taxpayers, that what is left over will be enough for them to live on. Their life is divided, like a soldier's or a schoolboy's life, into time on parade and off parade, in school and out of school. But the third class is of those who say, like St. Paul, that for them, to live is Christ. These people have got rid of the tiresome business of, uh, of adjusting the rival claims of self and God by the simple expedient of rejecting the claims of self altogether. The old egotistic wheel has been turned round, reconditioned and made into a new thing, the will of Christ no longer limits theirs, it is theirs. All their time in belonging to Him belongs also to them, for they are His. And because there are three classes, any merely twofold division of the world into good and bad is disastrous. It overlooks the fact that the members of a second class, to which most of us belong, are always and necessarily unhappy. The tax which moral conscience levies on our desires does not in fact leave us enough to live on as long as we are in this class we must either feel guilt because we have not paid the tax or poverty because we have the christian doctrine that there is no salvation by works done according to the law is a fact of daily experience back or on we must go but there is no going on simply by our own efforts it's profound and in my experience just so true and it puts the challenges. I think Scripture puts the challenge to us tonight, of which type of person are we? Are you that first type of person that he mentions, who all of this is just nonsense to? You don't feel the claim of God on your life at all. You feel no particular obligation to Him, you just live life and that's what you do. The idea of whether salvation is by works or faith just doesn't matter to you because you don't even think you need to be saved at all. But don't you? Do you really live that free life that you say to yourself that you do? Or do you find yourself justifying yourself secretly, subconsciously? You find it difficult to have someone buy you dinner and not pay them back. You're offered that promotion, you know is going to be more and harder work and a large part of you doesn't want to take it but there is a strange inexplicable part of you that feels driven to because of the success it will bring. You find yourself explaining a decision to your parents when you're only halfway through that you realize they didn't even ask you. You feel that pang of guilt when you walk past that homeless person And you feel the guilt regardless of whether you give them money or not. Do you really live a life free of the need to justify yourself? Of course we don't. We always feel the need to justify ourselves. To society. To our parents. To our friends. Do you really think you're free of that? No, you're not free of justification just trying to justify the wrong person it's not your parents or society who will hold you accountable on the last day it's god and it's to god and with him that you need to be counted righteous if the cross teaches us anything it teaches us that but you might not be that kind of person you might be the kind of person who understands full well that you need to do the right thing but just seem incapable of doing it. And you might be one of two kind of people in this class. On the one hand, you might be the kind of person who hears a sermon like tonight who reads the words of the Bible like this and is just frankly appalled. The fact that God will just forgive people because they trust in Him seems morally bankrupt. Doesn't that mean that really nasty people can go to heaven? Doesn't that mean that good people, pillars of society, who don't put their trust in Jesus, might not go to heaven? Doesn't that mean, you say, as you push yourself towards the logical conclusion, that a murderer might be forgiven for his crimes, that the Lockerbie bomber might, if he puts his trust in Jesus, be forgiven, and yet his victims not? That's outrageous, we say. And if you feel that, then that's absolutely right. It is outrageous. On the face of it, it seems totally unfair. And yet, when I analyse myself, when I feel those feelings myself, what is it about them that makes them seem so outrageous? With whom do I identify myself? The murderer or the innocent victim? Well, it's always the innocent victim, isn't it? It seems like such bad news for them. And yet God says that that is a class to which we just do simply not belong. We are not innocent before them. There are no innocent people. Not before God's eyes. That doesn't excuse the fact that people are sinned against. That's horrendous. Yet we are all sinners before God. And we can all be forgiven. You're actually a sinner. Salvation by faith is good news. Outrageously good news. You might not be that kind of person, you might be the kind of person who who really isn't offended by that, who's thrilled by that, who knows full well that, yes, salvation by faith is true, that it is right and yet you still can't get out of the old habits. You always seem to find yourself having a bet each way. I do this all the time. I know in my head and on my better days in my heart that God has saved me only because I've given in to Him and even that is nothing I can give, it's just me collapsing at His feet. And yet, I still find myself driven to do things for Him out of guilt, out of self-justification. This church, like most churches, is made up of 20% of people who do the work and 80% of the people who don't. Now, it's great that people here are doing these things. I think it's fantastic that people are are, are wanting to serve their brothers and sisters. But I think that it's people like, like you, if you're in that particular camp, who need to particularly worry about this. Because you could be so easily prone to hedging your bets, when you're slogging your guts out, serving the church here, serving Christian people, serving Kirribilli, so easy to almost unconsciously slip into thinking, I know Jesus has died for me, but all this work I do makes a pretty good stopgap. That is cancer, and it must be cut out. Of course, I'm not saying that is you, But if that's you, it will be better if you you just stepped off that roster. We'll cope. Someone else will hand out the Bibles. It's fine. And you can be free of that. We don't need to justify ourselves before God by the things we do. God has justified us freely in His Son, Jesus. We can be right with Him. Because there is a third type of person whom we can be. We can be the person... Who, far from ignoring God altogether or attempting to please Him so that we can be right with Him, wants to please Him because we know that He's made us right with Him. People who have abandoned any attempt at self-justification, who've just accepted God's grace and in faith do what they do out of love and gratitude knowing that it makes not one speck of difference as to whether they're going to end up after they die, but simply because it puts a smile on God's face. Isn't that the kind of life we here as Christians should aspire to? Isn't that what the great security of salvation by faith is? The faith taught to us in Romans. The faith of Abraham. Let's pray now that we might have that kind of faith that frees us and sets us free to love our Father as He wants us to. Let me pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we we thank You so much for the fact that uh, when we were hopelessly sinful, You didn't tell us just to pull ourselves up by our own bootstraps. You didn't tell us just to kind of lick ourselves into shape. But rather, You made promises to us You made a promise to Abraham that he would be a great nation and he trusted you. And that promise was fulfilled when your son was sent to die for us so that many people could become your children. We thank you for the fact that we have put our trust in that. That there's nothing we can do to justify ourselves in front of you. That salvation is only through believing, through trusting. We thank you that that's free. And we pray that we might live our lives in constant dependence upon you and in the light of that great truth. We ask all these things for Jesus' sake, that he might look wondrous in all the universe. Amen.